Good morning again. It's good to be here with you. Um, as we've been talking about, as was already described, uh, I'm going to be speaking today uh, from the book of Colossians chapter 1. Um, I have the privilege uh, today to be starting off uh, what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks here at church. Uh, we're following me for a couple weeks. We'll be Vigi preaching and then Nishant. And we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians as a whole. Um, now, what we need to realize is that uh, in looking at the book, there's four chapters, and so that breaks it up nicely for four weeks uh, to look at it. Uh, but when you look at the chapters and some of the content of some of the chapters, especially looking at chapter one, there, there's so much that's written, that's written in, in the first chapter um, and in all the chapters. There, there's so many different themes uh, that, that, uh, that are developed and so what we need to realize is that we're not going to be able to go verse by verse at every single, um, every single point throughout the book. We'll, we'll do that at certain points. But what we want to do over the next few weeks is more look at the book as a whole. Uh, try to pick out some of the general themes that are, that are uh, discussed by the Apostle Paul. And then just see how they all fit together. Uh, how they tie into the book as a whole. And what the general message is um, to not only the church at Colossae but also to us. Um, and being the first uh, one to start off in this series, uh, what I kind of thought would be helpful for us was just to kind of look at some of the general themes um, that, the, uh, that the book talks about right off the start, uh, and, and a bit of the context as well as to uh, why the book was written, who wrote it, who is it being written to, and, and why, why was it even written in the first place. And one of the things that... Uh, is, is kind of quick to come out when you read through the book, is that when Paul is writing this letter to the people in Colossae, he's actually never been there. And he, he wasn't the one to actually preach the gospel to these people, uh, the, the church who's there, the believers. And so what actually has happened in Colossae is that somebody from Colossae uh, has, has left that town and heard Paul preach somewhere else. Uh, in, in one of the different cities. And then what they've done is then they've, they've heard that message of the gospel, they've accepted it, and then they've taken it back to their own hometown. And so the church has responded to not Paul's message, but to another servant. And his name is Epaphras, uh, or Epaphras, however you like to say it. Uh, so, so generally, that, that, that's helpful to understand, and we'll, we'll see why, um, because that plays into some of the reasons as to why Paul is writing. Um, first of all, the church at Colossae is a young church. Uh, they, they haven't uh, been exposed to or known the, the message of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, for a long time. But they've heard it, and they've accepted it very eagerly. Uh, and it's bearing fruit among them. They've, they're rejoicing in hearing it. And so it's actually a very positive message that Paul is writing. Uh, looking at the rest of, or, or a number of the other books in the New Testament, if you look at the book of, say, 1 Corinthians, Paul is very much writing to correct things in the church that are going wrong there. Uh, there's, there's sins that are being committed. The way that they're doing uh, their church practices is, is, is wrong. And so Paul is writing actually to confront them and to challenge them. Uh, or in the book of Galatians, where Paul is saying, you know, you're, you're steering away from true faith in Christ by trying to add the law. Um, and, and so he's writing to challenge them and confront them and say, no, you're erring. This is what's wrong, and this is how you need to correct it. But in reality, what's happening in the book of Colossians here, Paul isn't really doing that. The tone of his message is a lot more friendly. Um, and, and, and why he's writing, he's, he's writing to encourage the believers there because they're young, they're eagerly accepting it, but, but in, in being young and in, and in eagerly accepting the gospel, what Paul has started to hear is that there are people and there's ideas that have started to kind of float around the church, either from without or from within, um, where the intention might not have been malicious to deceive, but they were ideas that were, that were potentially going to lead down a path where the, where the Colossians were going to start moving away from faith in the Lord Jesus. And so what he's doing, what Paul's doing when he's writing, is he's writing to gently correct. And we'll see that, that the foremost thing that he does is not to say, you're doing this wrong, but he's saying, let's look at the truth of what's right. And so... These, 
And again, looking at some of the errors that were being taught about, we can't know exactly what some of these false ideas were because Paul doesn't tell us directly, but he alludes to a lot of different things. Uh, and, and themes keep coming up in the book. Uh, themes like the idea of, of fullness, of freedom, of knowledge, and of power. And, and as, as we kind of see those things popping up, um, what we start to see is that when you look back in history, around the second century, about a few, a few years after this book would have been written, another kind of form of um, belief pops up called Gnosticism, which is very similar to what a lot of the ideas are being spoken of here. And, and so it, what we know about Gnosticism is that they try and tell that there's deeper spiritual truths than just simple faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, there's, there's deeper spirituality and and higher experiences, uh, spiritual experiences that can be had um, through deeper knowledge outside of what the Lord Jesus uh, presents in the gospel. And so what Paul does is he's writing to say that fullness and completeness of Christian faith is available in Christ. Fullness and completeness of, of Christianity, of our day-to-day walk, is known simply in knowing Christ. And not only is it complete, but that it's made available to all Christians, right? When, when, they, when these false teachers would talk and say that there's, there's deeper spiritual truths, what that would in fact do is say, there's some Christians here who know about Jesus, but then there's another level of Christians up here who know the deeper things. And so what it was doing, it was cre- creating a division between different tiers or levels of Christians, and it was creating division. And so... Paul is writing to say, not only do we all have full completeness in Christ, but it's made available to all. And finally, the biggest, the biggest theme that Paul wants to write about, and, and the theme of the book that, that Vigi and, and I and, and Nishant have discussed about, is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Today, again, as I've said, we're going to be looking at the first chapter and just the start of the second chapter. And, and as I was reading it over, the theme that I think that this, that this passage is talking about in general, uh, all of these verses fit under the head. The line that I want to focus on today is that there is fullness in knowing Christ because of the fullness of who Christ is. There is fullness in knowing Christ because of the fullness of who Christ is. And, and throughout today's message, I want to be springing off this, this general theme. If you want to open up your Bibles with me, uh, let's, let's read through. And it's, it's quite a few verses, but I think it's, it's going to be valuable, especially because we want to be doing an overview, just to simply read it. So we're going to be Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we just pray right now that your spirit would, would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would uh, have understanding. Lord, that you would lead us to know what your word is teaching us, Lord. Lord, that you would change us through it. Lord, we thank you that, that your word is active and powerful even now, Lord. Lord, would you teach us? We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So the first point that I want to look at, again, our general theme that we're talking about is that there is fullness in knowing Christ because of the fullness of who Christ is. And the first point that I want to go from this sentence is that there is fullness in knowing Christ. I want to focus on the idea that there is fullness. The idea of fullness or of completeness um, can be seen all throughout uh, what the, the passages that we just read. Um, we see words uh, like filled, all, every, full, um, especially in the verse uh, 15 to 20 where it talks about the Lord Jesus. It's, it's, it's saying he is all, he is all, he is everything, he's above all. Um, where I want to start with, though, is looking at verses 9 to 14. And it's, it's a prayer that Paul is, is recounting to the church there. And one of the things that I thought about as, as I was reading this is that Paul is writing down his, church, uh, writing down his prayer to the church. And, I, and as I was thinking about that, to understand that Paul is writing down his prayer so that so that the church there could know what he was praying, I kind of thought that that was, that was something that I, I've never read what somebody else prays for me uh, on my behalf. And, and what I think is going on when Paul is, is recounting his prayer here to them, when, when he's saying things like that they would be filled with, with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, what he's saying What he's wanting to teach and to tell the Colossians is that God, I'm praying to God on your behalf for these things because God can do these things in you. I'm praying these things for you because God is the one who can do them for you. God is the one who completes, who brings to completion. He's the one who fills us. Let's just just read those verses again, uh, starting at verse 9. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's just stop there. The idea of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. The, the idea of being filled with God's will, to know God's will, and not just to know it, to, but to be filled with it. 
I can, I can relate to some, some of the younger people who are here. I, I remember um, when I was growing up, there were a number of decisions not too long ago in my past um, that have made big changes in, in terms of what my, lo- my life looks like right now. Um, the idea of where to go to school uh, for university, I remember there was a big decision in my head, you know, should I go to Ottawa or should I go to Kingston? Um, and, and I was... I was, I was really wanting to know what the Lord wanted for my life. Um, so the idea of going to school, uh, the idea of who we should marry, uh, or even the idea of where we should work. For me, coming out of school, my first job was here. And, and those three decisions have, have really shaped a lot of what my life looks like right now. And I just remember, just in coming to the point of making those decisions, I wanted to know what God's will was for my life. And I can remember talking uh, to an older gentleman that I met uh, a number of years ago who I really respected. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was such a godly man and, and seemed so wise. And so I, I would talk with him about some things and he would, he, he would, you know, ask me how things were going. And when I would present these decisions before him, really what I was hoping for when I would talk to him, I so badly wanted him just to tell me what to do. I, I just so badly wanted him to tell me, you know, Go to, go to Ottawa. I, 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 can, I can tell that God wants you to go to Ottawa. And I, and I so desperately just wanted him to tell me, tell me, what is God's will for my life? And you know what? He would never do that. And, and I, I remember coming away almost frustrated from conversations. And yet looking back now, I can see, I can see the wisdom of, of how he would lead me and how he would counsel me because it was so much in line with what this prayer is talking about. The idea of being filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what, what is the point of those things? What is the point? That you, would be, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, in, in, in reflecting on those decisions that I made, I can see how the Lord led me. Um, but but what, this, what this verse was telling me, and, and, and in, even in the counsel that I would receive from him, he wasn't so much concerned about what decision I made, but it was about, he would ask me and probe me, what was my motivation for making my decision? And, and how could I see myself serving the Lord in those different places? And as I, as I thought about that, as, as we understand who God is, we know that God knows the general picture, the big picture, all the details of our life. He knows from beginning to end where we're going to be going. But he doesn't always reveal those kind of things for us. So we don't always know on the front end of a decision what we should do. But what this is telling us is, is not so much where we should go, but as you go and as as you seek my will for your life, that I will lead you and I will fill you with the knowledge of my will. And his will for us is simply this, our sanctification, our being conformed to who Jesus is, to becoming more like the Lord Jesus. As those verses say, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That, that is what that is what God's will is, what he fills, uh, what he promises to fill us with. The knowledge of how we can become more like the Lord Jesus. And so the idea of, of looking at of where we should go to school or who we should marry or, or where we should work, the idea is not, should I go to Kingston or to Ottawa? But making decisions confident in the fact, knowing that in both Kingston and in Ottawa, that I can serve the Lord there and that he will lead me and that he will grow me in those places as I seek him. The second, or so, so that, first, that first part, uh, the first couple verses of that prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And, and the, second, the second, the follow-up to that is that they would be strengthened with all power so they would know the knowledge of God's will and that they would be strengthened with all power. And, and as we read down those verses, the strength is for what? The strength is for what? As we read, it says, 
for all endurance and patience with joy. For all endurance and patience with joy. And when we consider the idea of the, the being strengthened with the, with, the, with the power of God according to uh, his glorious might, to look back throughout the Bible and to see the power of God you know, when, when I think about somebody's life, like maybe Samson, who was strengthened physically with the power to push down a building, or looking at the disciples who, who were given God's power to perform miracles, these words here, to be strengthened with all power for what? Endurance and patience? They're, they're kind of words that almost seem underwhelming. Do you, I'm not sure if you guys, or if you guys are understanding what I'm saying, but it's the idea of, all of God's power so that we would endure and that we would be patient. Down in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, Paul again talks about God's power. He says, for this I toil, for this I toil, struggling with all his power, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is relating the idea of God's power to endurance, to patience with joy, and to toiling. In some, in some ways, it can seem like, like that, that seems so dull. And yet, as I, as I was thinking about these things, all of these things require the strength of God's power. When I look back on my life and I see when I tried to endure in my own strength, when I tried to be patient about something in my own strength, when I tried to serve God in my own strength, I had, I, there, was, there was no way that I could sustain it because I would try and I would give up. I would become discouraged. What Paul's saying is that we need God's strengthening. We need God's strengthening in order to accomplish these things. And all of these things as well, I saw them being tied up. So much of what Paul is saying is tied up to the future hope of glory that we have. When we think about the idea of endurance, to endure, the verse that came to my head is that those who endure to the end will be saved. And so for us to endure, to continue going on strong in the Lord until he comes, that requires God's strengthening. And God's requirement for us to endure, he's the one who strengthens us to accomplish that. The idea of being patient with joy is linked not to the fact of my own strength, but in joy, what? Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us. So we can be patient with joy knowing that God is strengthening us as we look to the hope of future glory because he's the one who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And even in the word toil, that as I toil with his energy that he powerfully works within me, as we seek to serve the Lord and as we, as we toil in his work, it can sometimes be discouraging because we don't see the results that we expect. And yet the hope and the assurance that we can have when we look at the whole of scripture that says that he who has started a good work in us will bring it forth to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus. That he's the one who accomplishes it. That the work that we undertake is merely coming alongside what he's already doing. And he's going to be the one who accomplishes it, accomplishes it in us. And finally, that, that our labor in the Lord will not be in vain that as we look to the coming of the Lord, that he strengthens us with, with all power according to his glorious might. The idea of enduring, of being patient, of toiling, even of walking in a manner worthy and pleasing to the Lord, for, for someone who is outside of the church, outside of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, who isn't a believer, who isn't saved, those things seem like the farthest thing from a life of fullness, of, of completeness, of joy. And yet, for those of us who have been saved, as we consider these things, as, as, we, as we look ahead to the hope of future glory, these words change in our understanding and they become words of hope to us. Knowing that we, for those who who know and love the Lord Jesus, who look, who eagerly look to his coming, that we've been offered the fullness of the knowledge of his will so that wherever we walk, we can be pleasing to him and that we've been strengthened according to his power to stand firm in our faith.
and with the hope and realization that Jesus is coming soon, that we can toil, we can endure, we can be patient even with joy, knowing that our work will produce fruit. And so then it can be all of our hope and all of our expectation that we can say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Just a bit of a personal testimony. From a couple weeks ago, uh, Vigi was talking about hastening the day of the Lord. I'm not sure if you remember that, but uh, the Wednesday night following, we were just talking and discussing uh, what that looks like. And, and th- those thoughts were running through my head the next day. And when I went to work, I was just kind of thinking about them. And uh, one of my coworkers came in, and he sits quite near me, and, and this guy's a believer. And so we don't often get talking in the morning, but for, something, for some reason he came over to my desk, and we, we were just having a pretty shallow conversation. But just as it was dying down, the, the thought just popped into my head, and I just, I just looked at him and I said, take heart, brother. He's coming soon. And it just, I don't, I don't know why I said it. It just kind of came out of the blue. But I watched this guy's face. And when he understood, he kind of took a second just to register. And the smile that came onto his face and the sigh of relief when he, when he realized it, for both of us, that completely changed my morning. And that was honestly the best morning that I've ever had at work. When I had that perspective rearranged, I, I felt the strengthening of of God's power in me because, because my hope was not looking for, for the fulfillment of something in this world, but my hope is knowing that the fullness comes in the expectation of Jesus coming and that he's coming soon. And I hope that that can be all of our hope. There is fullness in knowing Christ. The second point that I want to look at is the idea that there is fullness in knowing Christ. There is fullness in knowing Christ. Again, as we've already talked about uh, the background to the church at Colossae, a lot, a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on the idea of knowledge and knowing and the idea of mystery, Christ being a mystery. And, and we see that all throughout. Um, one of the things that, that seems to be one of the issues that the church was dealing with was that because Epaphras was the one to deliver the gospel, and it wasn't Paul himself who had come, some people were almost starting to question whether or not Epaphras had not only got it right, but that he'd actually heard the whole story. And so there was an idea that maybe what Epaphras had brought, the message that he had brought, was was kind of the first part of the chapter. But that when Paul would come later, maybe that that there there was more to it. And so Epaphras got them in the door, but in order to, to really know and to really be saved, that there was additional knowledge that was required. And, and we see from, from an understanding of this, when we read uh, verses 3 to 8, which we're going to look at now, that Paul is going right at this, right at this idea that the, Col- that the Colossians hadn't heard the full message of the gospel or that it wasn't the true gospel. So let's look at verses 3 to 8. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And the, the, the idea that I want to look at, or the title that I want to give this, this phrase, is that the evidence of the truth. The evidence of the truth of the gospel. And Paul points it out in a number of different ways. One of the things he says, to paraphrase, is that it can be seen in your lives the truth of the message of the gospel that you have seen can be seen in your lives. How does he say that? He says that he can see it in your love for all the saints and in the faith that you have because of the hope that you know that is stored up for you in heaven. Your faith and your love for others, it's bearing fruit and it increases ever since you heard. What? What did you hear? The word of truth. 
So the evidence of the truth can be seen in your lives because of the fruit of your lives. He also says, not only can it be seen in your lives, but the effect of the gospel is consistent with what's happening in you as it's been seen around the world. He says, um, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since you heard the day, or since you heard about it, um, uh, since the day, yeah, you heard it. And so what he's saying is not only is the truth of the gospel the result of it seen in you, but it's consistent with what's happening everywhere that the gospel is truly accepted. Everywhere that the true gospel is being proclaimed, the same thing that is happening in you is happening in others. And finally, what he says is that the the evidence of the truth is seen in the testimony of the witness. Because he looks at the messenger. He says, Epaphras, and what does he call him? He says he's a beloved fellow servant and a faithful, he's a faithful minister on your behalf. He's saying not only is it seen in you, but it's consistent in what's happening with you as in what's happening in the, around the world. And look at the, look at the person who you've heard from. He is a beloved fellow servant along with me. And he is faithful. And basically what Paul is saying, he's saying hold on to what you've got. Hold on to what you've got because it's the real thing. It's the real thing. And I think from this, what what we can take, we can take both a warning and a blessing. A warning and a blessing. And the warning to start, when we look at this, the warning that we can take is that, or a question that we can ask is, is the effect that's seen in my life, when I claim to know the Lord Jesus, when I claim to have accepted the true gospel, the effect in my life, is it consistent with what the Bible says should be happening? Does my life line up with what should be happening when the gospel comes and makes and is accepted in somebody's life? And that can, that can be an overwhelming question to, a, to ask all of us because we know, like in the book of James, it says we all stumble in many ways, right? We, none of us are perfect um, and, and we, we all still struggle with sin. But if our life isn't consistent with what the gospel should be bringing about, the question that we need to ask ourselves is whether or not we've actually believed a true, the true gospel. Or if in our heads what we've done is actually changed what the gospel actually says and we accept something different. We're actually accepting a false gospel. A gospel that maybe says that, that we can accept who Jesus is and that he's died on the cross but that we can continue going on living in sin. Or that, that God isn't so concerned with, with our own walk as we, as we go about. Is the effect in my life consistent with how the Bible describes it in what the gospel should be bringing about? The evidence of the true, book, of the true gospel can be seen in our lives. Not perfectly, but Increasingly. Not perfectly, but increasingly. You know, when I was younger, uh, I had the blessing of growing up in a Christian home. Um, but the idea of, of believing and knowing in the true gospel was something that I struggled with. Um, I can remember as a kid, lying awake at night in my bed, feeling so guilty for the things that I knew that I had done wrong. And, and as I would you know, talk to my dad about it. This, I had this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame about, about the things that I had done wrong. And I couldn't know. I didn't know that, that I had been forgiven, that God had forgiven me. I, I, was, I was holding on to this guilt. And, and I, I, I remember it clearly just when I was a little kid. And even as I grew up, when I became a teenager and into my, my older teenage years, I remember struggling with the idea of, you know, I've, I've heard the gospel, I know it, I know it in my head, and yet, do I only believe because that's my default understanding? That that's what my parents taught me and that's kind of the understanding that I've always had? You know, if I wasn't raised in a Christian home, would I even come close to believing that this was the truth? And, and I struggled with, with assurance. I struggled with knowing that what the Bible said was actually the true message of hope. Reading what we've read, 
you know, verses like chapter 2, verse 2 that say that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance. With, the, with, with what I've grown up with and, and the understanding that I had as a kid, my ears always perk up when, when I'm reading through the Bible and I hear words like that. Reach all the riches of full assurance. And what, what I've grown, as I've grown, as I've matured in my life, I am so thankful that my eyes have been opened to, to not only what, what the Bible says in words, but the picture that it paints as to who our God is. To who our God is, the heart that he has. In the sense, and what I'm trying to say is that our God desires that we would have all the riches of full assurance of understanding. That we would know that we know. And as a kid growing up, not having that, I know in my heart what the blessing is, what the assurance is, how great it is to know that we have a Father in heaven who loves us and that we can know that we know that we have the truth, that he's rescued us, that he's redeemed us, that he's the one who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light to have our eyes open to the picture of who God is. These are some of the first words, uh, verses three to eight. These are some of the first words that Paul writes to these people. He's wanting to say to them, you have the truth and you can know that you have the truth. Hold on to it. I hope that that can be an encouragement for you to see that, that this is the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate and through Paul what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate. That there is fullness in knowing Jesus. There is fullness in knowing him. We've looked at the idea of knowing that there is, the idea, sorry, there is fullness in knowing Christ. We've looked at the idea that there is fullness in knowing Christ. And the final part is that we want to look at there is fullness in knowing Christ because of the fullness of who Christ is. And I don't think it's any surprise where we're going to look for that. Uh, we're going to look at verses 15 to 20. There is fullness in knowing Christ because of the fullness of who Christ is. Let's just start by reading it. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The idea of this chapter, or of this, this portion, the, the little title that I want to give it is that Jesus is above all. Jesus is above all. I'm sure a lot of your, your Bibles have different titles for this little portion. Maybe uh, the preeminence of Christ or Jesus is supreme. Basically saying that Jesus is above all. In all that he is, in all of his person, Jesus is above all. And it makes sense that Paul would go here when we have the understanding that these false teachers are coming to say that there's something more to add to this. The, the false idea is coming and saying that Jesus is the start, but there's something more. There's deeper, hidden truths that we can know. And what, Paul, what does Paul say? Jesus is above all. He is preeminent. We can go through the list of, of some of the things that he says here. We can't stay on, on all of them too long. But the first thing that he says is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the first thing that, that we say when we might see that, to think of an image might be looking in a mirror and seeing a reflection coming back at, at us. We might think to say that a reflection is something that's similar, but it's, it's not the real person. But it's, that, that's not, the, that's not the, uh, the idea that Paul is trying to communicate. The image is the fact that he is exactly the same as. The book of Hebrews kind of has a similar portion of scripture right at the beginning. And in verse three, that's, it says that Jesus is the exact imprint or the representation of, of God's character. So when it says that Jesus is the image, it's saying that he is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation in physical form of the character of the invisible God. 
The next thing it says is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And again, the, the, the word firstborn might jump out at us and say, Jesus is firstborn. Does that mean that he was like the firstborn of all creation? Like he was the first thing created? A lot of cults want to use verses like this to say that Jesus is, isn't God, that he's simply a created being. But, but when we read this, that, that cannot make sense. Jesus is not something that's created. Simply for the fact, if we're to keep reading, it says, for by him all things were created. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What that's saying is that Jesus is, <laughs> Jesus is outside of creation. He has not been created. And not only is he the one to create everything, but it says that all things were created through him and for him. He created it all, and all of creation's purpose is to glorify him. Even the very structures of authority that we can see in our world and in the unseen world, all of those things were created through him and for him. It says that Jesus, the next thing, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Sometimes there's an idea about God that people like to present that almost like God created the world, he was the one who created things, but then set it on its course and has walked away. What a different picture this is giving us. Not only did Jesus create all things, but he is actively holding all things together. And what that tells us is that Jesus, Jesus or the idea of God is not some impersonal, impersonal far-off being but he, that he is, he is so close, he's so intimate, he's involved. He's holding all things together. He's active, he's intentional, and he's present. And the next thing it says that he's the head of the body, the church. And if we're to keep reading down in Colossians, it talks about how if, we, if we're separated from the head, then, then that, that basically means death to the church. Jesus is the head, and what it means is that he nourishes us, he gives us growth, and, and he knits us together. The head nourishes us. As head, he is the ultimate authority of the church. It is not some man who is the authority of the church, not some presiding board of people, but Jesus is the head of his church. He nourishes his church. He knits it together and he grows his church. Next thing it says that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, we see this word firstborn. And rightly so, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is the first one to rise and to never to die again. That's true of him. But for the idea of firstborn, again, that doesn't really clear up when it says firstborn of creation. If we look over at another portion in scripture where it says that Jesus is the firstborn. In Romans chapter 8, it says, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So it's saying, those he foreknew, all those who would, who would come to Christ, he predestined to become like Christ. To what end? That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The idea of firstborn is not is not talking about something to do with time. It's talking about something to do with position and title, a sense of authority. That as he is the firstborn among many brothers who have been conformed to his image, as Romans says, so he's the firstborn from the dead, that he is the one who has authority. He is the one who is our leader. He's the one who is our chief for all those who will be raised from the dead, all those who have the hope of future glory. Colossians 3 verse 1 will tell us that if then you've been raised with Christ, that's us. So that not only do we have looking ahead to the hope of being raised from the dead, but even now the life that we live, Christ is our firstborn because we've been raised with him. That he is our chief. He is our foremost. He is our authority. And finally it says it flat out, that, he's the fu- that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
what we're seeing from this picture is that Jesus is overall. He's over all things. He's preeminent. He's foremost. He's the almighty creator. He made all things. He's the goal of all creation. He sustains all life. He sustains his church. He's the champion of all who have the hope of future glory. And I think what Paul is saying through all of this is he's saying, who can compare? When when we have ideas coming into the church telling us that there's something more that we can know, who can compare to who the Lord Jesus is? Simply look at him. Can we say that there's anything outside of him, outside some some knowledge, some idea of fullness, some experience that we can have that, that he isn't the one who is actively involved in it? Is he not enough? Is he not worthy of all things? Could there be anything more? And as I think about ourselves, even myself, is there any more who is more worthy? You know, when I think about how easily I can give up my time or my thoughts, even the the goals of my life that I want to see happening, how easily we give give up our time, our attention, the things that we love for things that don't fill us. And when here we have the picture of who the Lord Jesus is, who can compare with him? You know, looking, looking at this book kind of in, as a big picture, this is a defense that Paul makes against ideas, ideas that say that there's something more. Ideas of a different gospel. And what I love about this is that through, through some of the first words or first words to come off of Paul's pen, what he's saying is that we proclaim the Lord Jesus. We proclaim the Lord Jesus. The, the opening of Paul's argument is to look to the Lord Jesus. There's a stereotype outside the church and even from inside the church that sometimes we as, as people who are part of the church, we, we are known for what we disagree with. We're known for the things that we don't appreciate. We're known as people who, who like to point fingers at others and say that they're not doing it right. And it's true that as the church, we do have a responsibility to stand for truth, to, to stand for the truth of, of God's word, to label sin as sin. That is the role of the church. But I think it's such an encouragement, it was a, such an encouragement for me to see this, to hear Paul in verse 28 where he says, him we proclaim. Ultimately, the role of the church is to proclaim the Lord Jesus, the goodness of who he is. Even the idea of trying to present the gospel to somebody who has never heard it, you know, sometimes it can feel like we're, being, we're trying to be salespeople pushing some self-help product onto somebody who doesn't feel like they need it that they're fine with the way that their life is. When, 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 I, when I have the perspective that when I'm sharing the gospel, I'm proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Who can compare with him? This is who we are proclaiming. We can talk about who he is, about what he's done, about how worthy he is. And ultimately, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we're hoping, as in, Another part of scripture, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, what we're hoping for when we share the gospel with somebody is that God would shine in, our, in their hearts, in our hearts, the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we're hoping for for people who don't know the Lord Jesus is that the light of the gospel of the glory of God would shine through the face of Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim. There's fullness in knowing Christ because the fullness of who Christ is. To wrap things up, we've looked at three things. We've looked at the idea of fullness, of knowing, and we've looked at the idea of the fullness of who Jesus is. The things that I want to take away from today are related to those three things. Number one, that we would cling to the fullness of the true gospel not for the substitutes that the world or other religion tries to tell us are there. The world tries and tells us that our religion is outdated, it's not needed anymore, or it's naive. And even false religion would want to tell us that there's more than simply believing 
in the, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That we would cling to the fullness of the true gospel, knowing that through, through the power of God and through the filling of his knowledge that we can walk in a manner worthy of him, fully pleasing. The idea that we can be fully pleasing to God. So that we would cling to the fullness. And number two, that we would know Christ and rejoice in the fact that we can know that we know him. That we no longer walk through life wallowing or dwelling on our guilt. The idea where we're looking to, to try and find what truth really is. Looking for something deeper, something hidden, something mystical. Unsure of our standing before God and trying to improve ourselves outside of what Christ has already accomplished for us that we would walk with confidence knowing that we know Christ. And finally, the thing that I want to take away is that we would simply stand back, that we would look, that we would have our eyes opened, our minds enlightened, and our hearts warmed by who the person, is, the person of the Lord Jesus is. That we would take time even today just to look back again and read over verses 15 to 20 and just sit and ponder on the goodness of who the Lord Jesus is in his person. The final thing I want to read is chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and to know the knowledge of God, uh, sorry, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could have today. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, for giving us your word, that we can study it, that we can read it, Lord, and that, that we can know you Lord, thank you for sending your son. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful things of your word. Lord, we pray that you would increasingly open our eyes, increasingly shine in our hearts. Lord, that you would give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you change us that we would cling to the fullness of knowing Christ because of the fullness of who Christ is. In the precious and most worthy name of the Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.